0: This is John McGuire, and you are listening to Pentimental on SyncBook Radio. Today, on episode number 19, we have joining us for a one-on-one conversation, burlesque performer and actress Julie Alice muse as well as another one-on-one dialogue with freak actor and disability rights activist Matt Fraser. Contributing her own brand of unique background laughter this week is my own personal dream ally, Misty Greer. On this episode, we explore what it means to define oneself as an outsider, as well as the challenges involved in measuring our lives, our art, and our personal identities against the universal measuring stick of normality. Thanks again to my guests this week, and thank you for listening. Joining me today on Pentimental is Julie Atlas-Muse. Julie is a quasi-legendary burlesque performer and multidisciplinary performance artist hailing from New York City. To describe her in her own words, she employs showmanship, original costumes, and every conceivable type of stagecraft to immerse the audience in a thought-provoking, interactive, and entertaining experience. Amongst her many accomplishments on the stage, Julie might best be known for having won both the Miss Exotic World and Miss Coney Island pageants in the same year of 2006. So, with that said, Julie, thank you for being with me today.
1: Thank you very much. So, it's such a pleasure to be here. Quasi-legendary. Is that because I'm too young? Yes.
0: You stated (laughs) once that to be legendary means you have to be a certain age, and you're not there yet, so you're right in the middle. Thank you. You're welcome. So, starting out, can you embellish a bit more about yourself, how you entered the world of performance art and what drew you to the medium of burlesque specifically
1: okay i started wanting to be a performer at a very young age i was I, br- I i went to cats with my parents on broadway in new york city at about age 7 and that really struck a chord in like in me in every single way i was i loved the costuming i loved cats who doesn't love cats I love the music. I love the poetry. It just really hit my seven-year-old spirit. And then since then, it's been a journey of I'll do it, I guess, whatever I can do to be on stage or to be near the stage. I moved to New York City in 1995 to pursue a life in experimental theater and dance. And I was doing that a lot, and I still do that a fair amount. But I found, especially in experimental dance, there was so much rehearsal, like three, four hour rehearsals a week for three months for one free show in a church. And whereas that is so beautiful, I am too much of an audience whore to have that be enough for me. So I started performing in nightclubs. And then I started, I, I was working with an experimental choreographer, Catherine Hurahan, also known as Selena Vixen. She's from Australia. And she said, I think it was in 1997, Julie, come and do my show, The Red Vixen. It's a burlesque show. And I asked her, what's burlesque? And she said, oh, it's a short dance. and You either beginner you and naked. And I was like, yeah, it sounds great to me. I mean, I grew up in the MTV generation of music videos. That's when it was really like new and hot. And I slipped into this beautiful world. And, well, the world wasn't created yet because it was so early. As the world-famous Bob says, at that time, you could fit all of New York City's burlesque dancers into two taxi cabs. And uh, since then, the scene has grown, and it's taken off, and it's boom. Now you know it's huge. There's festivals all over the world. So getting into burlesque,
0: did you quickly get a sense that you were part of what's considered the neo-burlesque revival? Or did you not really consider the larger dynamic of what was going on? Was it just fun?
1: There wasn't dynamic of what was going on. It was 1997. The Blue Angel was happening in New York City, which was happening at a strip club. And it was like a night of performance art. And then Catherine Horahan was running the Red Vixen. So Red Vixen and Blue Angel. There was a little bit of a rivalry. I don't know if rivalry is the correct word, but maybe tension there. Uh, I wasn't very much aware of it. And then there was also the Velvet Hammer happening in the United in in Los Angeles. And then in 2001, so that was in 1997. And then four years later in 2001 was the first ever Teaserama, and we all descended on the first uh, ever Teaserama and you know got to know each other a little bit more. The Velvet Hammer, which is a great night by uh, Michelle Carr and Ursulina in Los Angeles in the late 90s, early 2000s, they would put on like one or two spectacular shows a year. And all the LA girls would make these fantastic outfits and these wonderful numbers for these huge shows, like at the Mayan Theater, at these really beautiful theaters. But in New York, at the Red Vixen, we were doing, every Sunday night, we were doing shows to pretty much a very small audience. But we were doing them every week. Uh, Except for if there was like a holiday on Monday and then the Red Vixen would be packed. Because I think the show started at like 11 p.m. on a Sunday night. That's when we were doing our shit. So nobody was really there except for us. It was Sky the Blue Bunny at the Red Vixen in its heyday. It was Sky the Blue Bunny. Dirty Martini was, she came to the show, but I don't even think she performed very much in the early Red Vixen days. But she was still performing. She performed in Sarajevo. Well, in the 90s. And then who else was there? Tigger was there. Velocity Child was there. Selena Vixen was there. And, you know, a handful of others. It was, I did three numbers a night and I go-go danced. My numbers were not developed, but they were fun.
0: Yeah. As someone that has come into burlesque more recently over the last couple of years and to learn a bit about the history and where it's come. And my familiarity is most with the Vancouver burlesque scene, which is a, a beautiful group of women, extremely talented, but, they absolutely worship you as one of the forerunners and someone that's helped establish the genre.
1: I worship those Vancouver girls. All of them. I think they're fucking fantastic. I really, really do. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt your question.
0: No, no question. Just really making a commentary there. And I got to meet you this year, Julie, at the Vancouver International Burlesque Festival, which was just an amazing collection of performers. And to really see the art close to its highest level in its most developed form. People were bringing up their best acts, and it was just so impressive and very, very powerful. And I get that sense as a a newcomer to the scene, and it represents a lot, and I can tell that it represents a whole lot to the people in the community that have been around it for a long time.
1: It was the New York Burlesque Festival just this past weekend. I'm sorry, if you're hearing meowing, it's my evil cat Bombero. You want to say something Bombero in the interview? No. Okay, well then, please be quiet. It was the New York Burlesque Festival just this past weekend, and Camille 2000 was staying with me, and Dirty in a taxi cab said to me, it's a good thing that we were grandfathered in, because the quality is so high right now. It's just unbelievable.
0: Yeah, Vancouver really impressed me, but the New York performers that came to the festival, all the American performers, that's at a high level now. The women doing it are just bringing a skill set to it that maybe... Initially wasn't a requisite, but now almost is. It's really evolved. And like all art forms, that's what we're striving for, I think. And that's something we should all be happy about.
1: Absolutely. And the internet has completely changed. I mean, when Red Vixen was going on, I was on dial-up. You know? It took forever to download a one-megabyte photo. Ow! My cat just bit me. Get the fuck (laughs) away from me, you little shit. God damn it. I love him. He, like, crawls on top of me all the time, but he didn't really draw blood this time. Motherfucker. Excuse me. You don't have to edit that out, but geez louise, my camp. Bombero, fuera, por favor. Fuera. One time I was getting interviewed about burlesque in my house, and they said, what do you think of feminism? And Bombero came right at my feet and just started throwing up.
0: But (laughs) before the camera interrupted everything, did you have any more thoughts?
1: Oh, no, yeah, just about like how lucky we are to be grandfathered into this this scene. And and it is a scene that does respect its elders, which as time moves forward, you know, (laughs) there's so many generations of burlesque performers. And it's just so great now that the whole scene just respects the elders. There is a spot for elders in this world in the world that we have created. And I think that's so forward-thinking and so right. I'm super proud to be in a primarily female-run scene that supports old people. You know, it's good for me, yo.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's definitely one of those things that helps transcend sexism and ageism. And it was April-March, I think, that I remember from the Vancouver Burlesque Festival and at TikToks and... It's just amazing the, the accolades that these performers are still given. Even though it's a small niche community, it's still people respect their history.
1: Yes, yeah, that starts somewhere.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: For sure. I'm into it. It's cute. It's cute. Yeah, the New York Verlos Festival was really fun this weekend. And Camille 2000 was staying with me. And, you know, she's got. A real fiery reputation, but I gotta say, she's professional, she's a doll, she was an excellent house guest and a good friend, and I'm glad, like, late at night when we came home, we just played DJ Roulette, where I played a song, she played a song, I played a song, she played a song, and, like, she's got banging taste, man. Awesome. Super fun.
0: So, I'm gonna go a little out of my questions here, because we just brought up a community that respects people who age in it, so I guess for you as an artist who utilizes her body and features her sexuality as the centerpiece of her acts. I mean, how do you feel about the process of aging in relation to that dynamic? And I don't know, I guess maybe what can other people get out of it that aren't necessarily burlesque performers that they can learn about what it means to live in relation to getting older or wiser or not any of those things.
1: Well, I think one of the things that you have to maintain when you are getting older and something that I really try to do is uh, to train You have to keep on training, and you have to keep on, as an older artist, you have to keep on upping your game, not necessarily for your audience, but just to make sure as a creative that you don't get bored. So I try and go to ballet. I've been taking African dance class because Theater Bazaar is coming up, which is like the best freaking party in the whole wide world right now. And I just want to make sure that when I go on stage, I have the facility in my body to give 110%. every time, you know, to like turn the volume up to 11 and really deliver. I'm 43, right? So I'm still quite young, but I want to be able to keep on doing high kicks and drop splits for another, you know, 20 years. My husband, Matt Fraser, he's 54 and he can kick as high now as ever. He trains three times a week at kickboxing and it's a real commitment and discipline to take care of your body. So, girls warm up (laughs) like just warm up make sure you train and uh that's one thing and also I'm like I'm studying voice now I have a new character juicy hardcore who makes peanut butter sandwiches and uh I've been very scared of my voice for about 10-15 years and then I've been doing more theater in the past five years. So I'm like, you know, Julie, time to work on your voice, time to develop that aspect of that avenue for possible creation. So that's really exciting. I have a new song that Matt rewrote the lyrics to, Talk to the Animals. I'm super, I, I could do, I could sing for you. I just had a voice class for it today. But as for the, from the audience perspective about getting older and aging, I think that is really fantastic for like a 20 year old to look at uh 50-year-old's body and think it's hot. I mean, I think it's wonderful. I think that you are hot or you're not, and it doesn't matter how old you are, and it doesn't matter what shape you're in. It doesn't matter your shoe size or your dress size. It doesn't matter if you can walk. It doesn't matter if you can see. If you have the full use of your limbs, your ability doesn't matter. You're either hot or you're not. And not being hot isn't a permanent state either. It's a mental state. So that's something to try and tap into.
0: And for me, it helps defy that sort of consumerist mind virus where everything has a shelf life and everything is an object. And we even project that onto human beings. It's just like by default, this is the fishbowl that we're swimming in. And these things definitely program us and they program our relationships to people and how we think of them and how we think of ourselves. And to see ourselves more as like a timeless object, not an object, I mean much more, much more dynamic than that, and appreciating that process and appreciating yourself is more. I see that celebration in those sort of gestures and nods to the sexy qualities of being older or just the, if not sex, there's just like all other wonderful qualities of it. It's true. You can actually get wiser and learn things as you grow older. And experience does teach quite a bit if you have the filters to... Process those experiences and they don't turn you bitter or whatever. But anyway, so all those things I think are really programmed into the artwork itself that is beautiful.
1: Yeah, but also, like Matt and I do a show called The Freak and the Showgirl, uh, which we've toured all over the world, primarily in Australia and in Europe, not so much in the United States. Uh, it's an evening length cabaret, you know, disruptive comic cabaret. It's very fun. And at the end of the show, we do a au- mandatory audience participation part and we bring up audience members and we we whittle them down to the two favorites and we do a beer drinking contest and it's not a race it's a style contest it's like a beer orgy where we disrobe them we Matt and I are almost completely naked and we just slosh around with a six pack of beer and you know they spit in my butt you know it's a it's a beer orgy and i tell you when we would pick the hot 20 year olds They were so boring and consumed with their own insecurities. But when we pick some lady like celebrating her 55th birthday, it would be balls to the wall, cray cray. It was so much better. I got to say, people look at these old people. You know, young youngsters look at the 65 to 80-year-old generation, and those people, have, you know, porn was really introduced then. That was the sexual liberation. That was a lot of the women's movement. These people are radicals, and they lived through radical times. You know, lots of drugs, lots and lots and lots of drugs. So they have more experience. They are experienced, as Jimi Hendrix would say don't underestimate them when you see a whole crowd of people at your show that got blue hair get psyched get psyched
0: and i think we live in actually shockingly conservative times as permissive as the culture is in ways at the flip side of it there's a lot of repression and young people in all kinds of ways yes it's like we're given permission to explore sexuality but at the flip side it's like we're so traumatized in other ways and damaged that we can't really experience sex and love and enjoy those things and sort of a free and open way because we're so guarded. In my opinion. I think that's a millennial disease for sure.
1: Yeah, I mean everyone's recording everything right now. And that is I mean it's so insipid that it does really hinder people's sense of freedom and and wildness and wild spirit. So I, I do sometimes feel so sorry for this, you know, younger generation because they can't get away from what they've done. <laughs> <laughs> Everything's recorded.
0: Yeah, memory can be a really fucked up thing that way, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Well, okay, so there's a couple launching off points, but real quick, I want to get into Burlesque and what you do on the stage and elsewhere, and I want to explore it in a general way, but also you, you brought up your husband, Matt, and you alluded to your work you do together, but can you tell us a bit more about Matt Freezer and who he is, how you two met, and besides... The work that you mentioned. What other sorts of stage productions do you do together?
1: Sure. Uh, uh, Matt is my one and only true love. I met him in Coney Island. We were doing a show. We were both married to other people at the time. Marriages that were already waning when we met. But definitely, us meeting, you know, was a catalyst for ending those marriages in a healthy but ended manner. <laughs> And he introduced me in this really beautiful way, and I loved the way he smelled. And we did that one show, and then he went back off to England, and I went home to my apartment in New York City, and I had a couple of dreams about him. And I emailed him my dreams. This is when he was on dial-up. And... Then he said, hey, you want to do a project? I've got these disability arts festivals. You know, I, I'd, I'd like to collaborate. What, do you have a proposal? And just right off the tip of my tongue, I said Beauty and the Beast. And that had a ring of truth to it for both of us. And we started doing, we started making Beauty and the Beast at these festivals, these disability arts festivals all, all over the world, like Zagreb, the Extravagant Bodies Festival. And hence, I kind of got into the fold of the whole disability art scene, which is freaking awesome. It's very developed in, in Europe, and a lot of the artists there just have a, a very unique outsider perspective that is super smart and, and beautiful. And then we, every time we did that show, we got standing ovations, and it was a real mom and pa version of that show, real performance arty, very loosey-goosey. We did some of our... Original numbers in that in that show, like I did my balloon act, he did Seal the Seal Boy. But after we got these standing ovations, we thought to ourselves, "Hey, this deserves another look." See, during that entire time, our prospective marriages had collapsed, and we got together in in truth. And that was really great. At that same time, I was bringing Matt, which is coming over to London, coming over from London to New York City to visit me. And I was like, shit, I want to get this guy hooked up into the burlesque scene. And I was super enthusiastic about him. So I made Seal Boy and the Blondes, which was myself, Dirty Martini, Bambi the Mermaid, Bunny Love, Tigger, sometimes Little Brooklyn. And we did and Matt hosting it. We always ended with a pie fight, which a la The Slipper Room. It was usually at The Slipper Room, and it was just a wild orgy of fantastic, like, outrageously loving performers. That's how I always described it. And then everything just sort of snowballed. Matt and I got asked to do another festival, but we didn't want to do Beauty and the Beast, so we made up the Freak and the Showgirl. The Freak and the Showgirl will give you a blow to your solar plexus with comedy, oh, and threaten the nature of your libido conjoining striptease, vaudeville, and then sideshow. You know, that is our opening number. Matt's really good at writing music. Matt's very great at, you know, public relations. I'm really good at tech and more behind the scenes. So that's, you know, tech and stage management is my forte. Lyrics, songwriting, and promotion is his forte. So we mesh very well in that department. And then, you know, we got married. We had all these wonderful things together. We have the Freak and the girl as a show. Beauty and the Beast, we... Worked with Phelan McDermott and Improbable. Phelan McDermott was our director. We got uh, Arts Council England big old grants to flush it out and make it a full-blown scale production. Now we're going to be doing Beauty and the Beast at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago from December 1st to December 11th, 2016. It's going to be a fucking great show. We toured it to Australia. I mean, this is a show that the set and the costumes and everything take up half of a trailer. Like a truck. So it's a, it's a big flagship show. That's our fancy pants show. And then we have our not so fancy pants shows. Recently Matt has got his band, The Spasms, which includes Velvet Crayon, who's freaking fantastic and Ken Ball. Those are all of the band members are somehow disabled. And then the backup singers are the partners. So it's Mel and myself. And soon, very soon, we'll be re- releasing our first video that Matt wrote and I directed Radioactive Japanese Jellyfish. So look out for that because that's going to break the Internet, yo. It's so fucking good. psyched. Matt and I are both workaholics and we're constantly working. You know, on vacation, I'll be like, he'll be like, you know, relaxing and I'll be like doodling in my journal. And then we'll say like ass freaks. That's a great name for a show. And then, you know, we just did five years of Ass Freaks at, you know, the Coney Island Freak Show that had a huge following. After five years, I was like, that's it. But we are going to do the return of the Ass Freaks next year, I think, at Coney Island. It's back. Well,
0: what I've seen of your Beauty and the Beast, nudity is a part of your performance art generally, and you definitely bring it into this, and sexuality, and what... Were you trying to communicate with bringing the classical tale of Beauty and the Beast with these more risque or body themes?
1: Well, you know, Beauty and the Beast typically, well, from our perspective currently, it's been sanitized by the Disney children's version, but originally it was more of an adult story. And there's two simultaneous stories going on in the fairy tale of Beauty and the Beast uh, that are both of self-acceptance. Most fairy tales have a female, like a young girl, On the verge of womanhood, there's not usually a mother present, sometimes a stepmother, and then there's usually a problem with the father. So the protagonist, the or beauty, she defies her father into her own adventure. And this happens to be a sexual adventure with the beast, right? She ends up falling in love and marrying the beast in all versions of the story. And the beast comes to a period of being able to accept love for who he is then truly becomes who he is on the inside. So those two stories were perfect for, you know, disability rights activist Matt Fraser, who is my husband, and feminist performance artist Juliette atlas muse. And then we just took it back to the adult level, and the story just resonated. didn't take it back to the adult level. We made it more adult because that's the kind of work that we were interested in at the time and are still, you know, mainly ensconced in mostly work in, you know, 18 plus. I mean, I do work all ages and I have taught urban youth theater just last year, but I do exist in a subculture of adult material. I found myself very recently reminded of that fact because I was invited to perform 20 minutes of new material at Kathy Weissacre's Sundays on Broadway, a modern dance, experience, you know, from like six to eight, like a bunch of modern dancers share work and talk. So I was like, great, I'll try out my new character, Juicy Hardcore. I was first, there were 70 people, in the, 70 people in the audience, 10 people left during my act. And I was like, oh, that's right. It's 6pm. Juicy Hardcore is adult. She should be happening at 10pm. I misjudged myself at that time. The punk rock defensiveness when people leave the audience is, yeah, then it's not a good show if nobody leaves. And that's true, kind of. But also, I really want to be loved by everybody. So I, I don't like it when people... Well, I don't like it when I hit the mark correctly. And I, I miss the mark on that show. Oh, well. And
0: that is an aspect of being an artist, if you're a true chameleon in a sense. I mean... You are trying to appeal to somebody, and if you're appeal- appearing a certain time slot, that's for you to be aware of and so on, and I guess some people are just going to be super stubborn about what they will and won't do, and if they don't like it, great, but you know, some of us, yeah, we have that desire to have a relationship there, you know, and not turn people off. It's like, how can I turn people on while still getting a message across, but not necessarily taking it to a level where I might force them to go away and them never hear my voice, so...
1: Yeah. And then to like see my name and be like, Oh, I hate her, which, you know, it's not, it, it, it does exist. You put yourself out there, you put yourself out there. Oh, so, yeah. We do exist in a bubble in the burlesque world, you know, and it's a beautiful bubble. I just re- was reminded very much of it <laughs> on Sunday. I was like, Oh shit. When I'm like, I'm opening the show, my lyrics for my opening song are very. If I could talk to the animals, just imagine it, chatting with the chimpanzee, I would stop resisting and let him do the fisting. If I understood his talking was so sweet. I used to pork with the animals for the cameras from 1991 to 93, two years of stealing, but I never knew their feelings. I had to get out for my sanity. You know, like if you're talking about bestiality, <laughs> I mean, you're going to make a peanut butter sandwich on your vagina to Wham's Careless Whisper, and there's a 16-year-old in the audience and a three-year-old in the audience. The three-year-old, okay, you just turn your eyes during the peanut butter sandwich time. But everybody else, I did go up to people and say, I'm sorry, this is adult material. I wasn't aware. <laughs> I wasn't I wasn't sensitive. I apologize.
0: Yeah, when people walk out or you have, have those sorts of experiences, it makes you realize that you are challenging senses of normality or good taste or whatever that means. And another thing I've heard you say is that a lot of what you're doing is about challenging normality. So this is, again, a broad question, so go wherever you want with it. But what is normality to you? Why does it need challenging? And how do you think art and what you do, your art specifically, accomplishes that? What is it doing?
1: Well, you're right. Matt and I do use that word normality. I guess I just thought it sounded good. Let me think on it for a second. I mean, I suppose I see normality as it's hard to say, you know, because what's my normal? My normal is not at the same time as everybody else's normal. For example, today, today I have to be at work probably at 1245 a.m. And I'll probably get off work around 3 a.m. That for me is normal. Me waking up at Noon, because I go to bed at 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. is normal. That's, a, you know, solid eight hours. 11 a.m. or noon is a normal time for me to wake up. And then I say maybe the majority of the world, at least the dominant part of the world wakes up for work at 9 or 10 a.m. So for me to have to get all my banking done, before the banks close is a difficult thing to do. That's I I exist in a not normal subculture of the world, and I just think that that's already difficult enough. But then on top of it, to judge yourself because you don't fit into the confines of the dominant part of society, to judge yourself negatively for that is a trap. Just say, okay, well, then that means I have to prepare in a different way, but I can get it done. That is more freedom. Also, you know, freaks and sexy ladies uh, have been hand in hand through the the test of time. You know, very old relationship from, the, you know, when the carnival would come to town. That's why we were both on the sideshow. The carnival literally used to be in, in um, a U shape and on the side, was the more adults or the the freakier entertainment, the sideshow, and then the hoochie coochie tent. So we've always been near each other. And for me, what's normal is at a festival, at like a disability arts festival, talking to a bunch of people who have very thick accents because of their disability. Or in a burlesque festival, me hanging out in a nightclub with a bunch of Half naked ladies. Ladies wearing lingerie to work is normal for me. So I guess it's just not judging, not, not judging that negatively. Does that make any sense?
0: Oh yeah, it makes, it makes total sense. And I think that for me and what any artist does, it whatever they, their definition of normality is or whatever they see as normality in relation to themselves, we're trying to carve space for people to, find some sort of safety or not escapism, but a space that they can explore different dynamics of themselves that ordinary culture doesn't allow for anymore. Um, in the same sense that I would say that Burlesque and other things like even what I do in the synchronicity community or so on are extensions of carnival culture. And the carnival is a very old pagan tradition of people just breaking out of their repression, sometimes like swapping white, doing all kinds of crazy shit, putting on their masks, you know, they put on their masks and their costumes to step outside themselves and that is both what burlesque performers are doing but they're also fully embodying what they want to work through and what they want to communicate it's it's this beautiful synthesis and so i think carnivals and you know it's it has this one cliche aspect in culture but it's a very 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 deep and things can look yeah. ridiculous but actually be extraordinarily meaningful and important for what I consider human evolution. Like humans, this is part of human evolution, these discussions and so on. We're a strange sort of animal, whatever we are. And these sorts of expressions of self and culture building and the conversations that constellate around them are what drive human evolution more than anything. Now that we have the conscious minds to sort of play with ideas like this, this is what we need to be doing. So I appreciate on a very, very deep level, whether that's delusional or not. I don't think so though.
1: The history is as old as time, right? You know, they're the shamans, but then also there were the buffoons and you know, the buffoons could get away with telling the truth to the king and it would be either funny or disregarded or heard. But the buffoons who lived on the outskirts of society, on the outskirts of town, outside of the wall, came in and would put on shows for the king, and the king the king would hear it. The the truth. The truth is the outsider saw it. Now I mean, a clown entertains the king. He tells the king what the king wants to hear. But the buffoons do not. And I've always considered myself more of a buffoon or a buffon. And Matt as well. So that is something that, I mean, that can get us in trouble sometimes, even within our wonderfully accepted burlesque communities. You know, I, I did a, a number closing the Saturday night at the New York Burlesque Festival that I didn't prepare for very well, you know, where I just wore a Trump mask and I stripped to my favorite band right now, Heavy Load. Uh, they're disabled bands. Uh, their, their, their song, Shut It. And their drummer Michael doesn't even believe in four four. They're so fucking nonconformist. Four four doesn't even exist. So that was trying to, you know, that was speaking what was on my mind, what was on the truth. Did it necessarily go with the New York Burlesque Festival? Yeah, because it's New York Burlesque, and it was old school. It was Blue Angel style. It was Red Vixen style. Is when we would throw something on stage and see how it went. I miss a little bit of that when everything is so polished, but you know, hey, evolution, right?
0: Well, and that's I think why you miss it, because evolution is spontaneous, and I mean that's why I like my format and that it can be spontaneous and so on, and, and having a conversation recreates that. it represents a process that everyone can latch onto and appreciates at that just deep genetic biological level that you can't even understand is going on. Or you can understand it, but you can't really sense it. It's just, it's, it's amazing that way. And, okay, <laughs> I'm trying to think where to go next. Do you read much Alan Moore, the guy that wrote Watchmen and yeah. V for Vendetta? Yeah. So Alan Moore, he, one of my favorite movies of all time is a short documentary. Well, not short. It's an hour and a half called The Mindscape of Alan Moore. And he's just talking and he's just talking and talking. And those are the most interesting to me, the people I want to hear and letting them rant and at one point he talks about magic the essence of what magic is and you can have all sorts of naive perspectives on what magic is or isn't and fit them into your life however you see fit and sometimes even if they're naive they can be very helpful but he defined magic as hey we're creating these moments where we're actually changing people's consciousness through symbolic expression and and maybe changing minds for the better and in that sense we're all sort of doing our magic on stage we're all magicians or illusionists in some sense and it's just a question of you know, are we doing it for for good or bad? Or what is the intent that goes into it, right? So someone could be offended by your performance, but the intent is everything about liberation and human expression and like love and love for yourself. And, uh, and they're not necessarily seeing that all the time, but that is the intent. And that's what the important thing is. And otherwise, you know, it can be used and abused in all sorts of ways. Like, I don't know, look at Advertising—that's <laughs> magic. Yeah. Only it's used in the other way, you know. So I appreciate magicians like you and Matt and other folks that are actually out there. It's real magic. It's performance art. It's life. It's, it's expressing who you are. That is what magic is. And so I, I tether these things together too. If we're going to tie in carnivals and you know magicians and illusion and all these things, it's it's a crazy and cool constellation of ideas and themes that all fit together so well in my mind.
1: Mhm. Mhm. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not a historian. Not am I really like a proponent of reincarnation, but you can feel when you're mounted by a spirit and you can feel when the vibration is correct. You can't hold on to that. You just have to allow it to happen.
0: And I don't think people even allow themselves to have those thoughts because... I'm always skeptical of my the thoughts that enter my head and how I conceive with things. But if you feel something and you want to express it, like okay, it feels like my spirit or whatever, or you know, like an ener- in an energetic principle sort of way, it sounds new agey or irrational. But this is the emotional landscape of living, and we have to find ways to communicate it. And as as long as we don't like let it, I don't know. There's there's an element to keeping your feet on the ground, but your head in the clouds, and I think that you, Julie, and other folks in this community and elsewhere, like people I admire, find ways to do that. And these are the people I try to interview. Because there's an equilibrium in life that no one ever finds, but there's always people that are straddling it more than others. And so I just appreciate you occupying that middle ground. That's so almost impossible to stay in.
1: But you managed to do it. That's where I think the training comes in handy, you know? Because if you train and you keep your vessel as facile as you are able to be, then it allows for that energy to go through you a little bit easier. And it's just like, you know, if you want to take it out of the woo-woo land, which I love being in woo-woo land, you can also go back to, like, Keith Johnstone and some of, like, the basic rules of improvisation. Like, go with the obvious. And your obvious might not be obvious, because your obvious isn't going to be obvious to everybody else until maybe sometimes after they've seen it. So, Yeah.
0: Okay. Something that, for me, being more of a newcomer and being more of a newcomer to to your artistic expression as well, something that has caught my attention is your face, your expressive face. And that was the first thing I talked to Misty about in seeing you. I was really, you and Matt did a number, I think it's called American Trilogy, if that's correct. It was amazing. But the way that you were on stage and holding yourself and the way your eyes and face was engaging, that caught my attention. So I wondered, oh, what was the motivation for that and so on? And then I heard an interview where you said specifically, I strive to be articulate with my face. And so I guess for – is can you embellish any more on that just for my benefit? And I don't even have a specific question about it. But, I mean, what are you doing there with your face? That's <laughs> that for a question?
1: That's a good question. Well, okay, I'll, I can go take you – let me talk uh, quickly about American Trilogy. American Trilogy, I always – dedicate, cause I want to keep it fresh, you know, I always dedicate each performance to something very specific. When I was visiting my mother in Detroit, uh, there were 16 murders in one weekend. And then I came back to New York City and I dedicated it to that. You know, I try very hard to be specific about what I dedicate my number for. And I try and think in also the balloon number, bull- numbers that I do a lot. I try and keep it fresh by doing it for somebody else, like a yoga practice, you know, something like that, like that kind of practice. And that, that's what helps me keep engaged. And even though my faces might be crazy, I don't want them to be hammy because I want them to be sincere. I don't want it to be a mask that I put on. Instead, I'd like it to be a mask that I take off. So that's one thing in terms of American Trilogy. But then also like really early on in my lessons, I study, I'm studying at American Dance Festival with a teacher who had five degrees of smiling and I can talk you through them. There's first, there's zero, which is a neutral face, no, no smile whatsoever. And then the first degree of smile is just when the corners of your lips turn up a little bit. And then a second degree smile is when you smile only showing your top teeth. And then a third degree smile is top teeth and bottom teeth shown during the smile. Fourth-degree smile is top teeth, bottom teeth, and mouth open. And fifth-degree smile is almost hysteria. Mouth wide open, eyes wide open, all teeth shown, mouth open. So if you want to look in the mirror and do this exercise, go from a first-degree smile to a fifth-degree smile, and then a second. Second Second-degree is just top teeth showing, first-degree second degree, first degree. So that is sometimes a warm-up exercise. She taught me the degrees of she or he, I don't even remember who taught that to me, taught me the uh, five degrees of smiling. And then in my own practice, I added the five degrees of screaming or frowning. So the neg- the, the tragedy to the comedy faces of that. Um, and that's just like a little exercise. And I think it's really important to have your eyes sparkle. Your eyes should be sparkling more than your rhinestones. It's very convenient for me because very few of my costumes have rhinestones. (laughs) But, yeah, that's that's just the stuff. I think that face is really important. Also, when I teach, which is very rare, but I taught in France with the Cabaret New Burlesque a bit. I've taught a little bit at New York Burlesque Festival. I say, you know, give me a blowjob face. And me saying blowjob face to a, a room full of some maybe shy people just opens a door. Just says, this is where we are, blowjob face. Oh, she said blowjob. Do that. I feel like sometimes people are too extreme in their faces. Uh It doesn't have to be so extreme. But I do enjoy it. If you watch Dirty perform and she's really, really like into it, watch her. She chomps the steak. She's chewing that steak. (sighs) So when she smiles, (sighs) she's just chewing that steak. We always make fun of each other, for that kind of stuff.
0: Anyway. All right. I have to ask, is there anything you're still afraid of doing on stage? Is there anything that you have always sort of had in the back of your mind and not done? Or are you just sort of living moment to moment at this point and you're up for anything? Because you did talk a bit in Vancouver about fear and letting it wash over you. And what, I guess, what does that mean For you, too, as an artist and embracing fear going through it, or how has it worked in your life?
1: Like I'm scared every time I go on stage, man. I'm scared to shit to sing, and I'm doing it. I, I, I recognize that I'm scared or something, and then I'm like, okay, and then I will feel scared. Like this summer, I was on an Irish soap opera shot in Dublin, and I had to sing as a wedding singer. I played a Las Vegas showgirl was also a wedding singer and I was asked to sing and my character Meredith Monterra at a wedding. So I had to sing you two's all I want is you three cameras. My first day of shooting, I was in nine episodes and they shoot very rigorously. You know, you shoot one episode a day, 23 minutes of television a day. That's a lot of work. And I tell you, I was scared out of my pants all July. I was doing new things that scared the shit out of me. And I became so familiar. You know, when you're so like scared and like adrenaline hits you and you sweat out of every pore at the same time, that's what was like all, it felt like my perpetual state of being, but you know, I'm not going to let it stop me. I'm not going to let fear paralyze me. I'm going to let it wash over me and I'm going to go through it. I've been performing for 20 years, 20 years. Yeah. Almost 20 years as a burlesque performer. And I still get nervous and scared as shit almost every time almost every time but do it anyway
0: well can you give people who have never seen your acts maybe what's your favorite performance or what, what is your favorite act my personally my favorite one i've seen is the hand the hand is one of the funniest things i've ever seen And of course your bubble is incredible but what is most near and dear to your heart
1: Oh, glory. That's really, uh, I really like doing Juicy Hardcore right now because I talk and I sing with her. I'm also making two new acts for Theater Bazaar. Oh, that one I'm really excited about. I'm doing Ghost Town, and I'm going to be working with two puppets, and that's going to be real. That's really something fun. Um, But my favorite performance, I I really can't say, is probably the one that I'm about to do or the one. No, not the one that I've just done, because I always grade myself after a show. And so it depends on how I perform. I don't know what my favorite one to do, but I guess I could describe something. What do you, you want me to describe something? The hand. You know, I'm so bad at describing my own work. I will tell you that. Like, you know, the hand. I am a girl lost in the woods. And Screamin' Jay Hawkins' music, I Put a Spell on You, is playing. And I'm wandering around, very happy. I see the audience. I say, hello, audience. And then as I turn around, the audience sees behind my back a disembodied, bloodied hand that then taps me on the shoulder, says hello, and then I freak out. As I freak out because this disgusting, disembodied hand is, you know, touching me, it's takes off my skirt, and then I freak out even more until that hand hypnotizes me and puts me to sleep, then proceeding to take off my clothes. And then when it thrusts its fisting fist into my nether regions, I wake up. And then I see that this hand is in my jj and I pull it out, and I wrestle with it until the hand itself is successful in strangling me to death. Uh-huh. It's a great act. <laughs> like this is what happens when you masturbate. <laughs> oh God! Oh
0: my God! No, I, I appreciate that overview because that's basically it, and it's, it has to be seen to be believed. And your performances generally are just hyper creative, and you're worshipped for a reason, Julie. You're amazing in that sense. It's just like it's very impressive. You mentioned you're an avid reader. I guess, what is your favorite thing to read, and what are you into right now?
1: Well, you know, what I'm reading right now is not no longer really my favorite thing to read. I've gotten trapped into fantasy romance novels to fall asleep. If there's, like, a werewolf and sexual tension, I've read it. Ley lines and witches and demons and all that <laughs> shit. I've read the whole series maybe two or three times. So it's, it's embarrassing, but it's, it's the truth. I try and read literature occasionally and I got rid of my Kindle Fire, which just really became, you know, trash. But what I'm currently studying is a book called How They Do It by Robert A. Wallace. And it's how animals have sex, which is very fascinating. This is all of my research for Juicy Hardcore.
0: So what is your favorite animal sex maneuver or what have you learned from this book that the rest of us should know?
1: Well, I mean, this is from from this book and then also from my further research. You know, eagles, the way that they have sex is they fly as high as they can into the air and then they copulate during free fall, which I just think is beautiful. uh giraffes now this is something to imagine as well the male giraffe has to pee in the female giraffe's mouth (laughs) (laughs) it's about marking territory a rabbit uh the gang. okay there's ducks i mean like this this stuff is the truth i'm telling you ducks it's they i believe they mate for life i'm not sure on that but the female duck also every season gets molested by gangbang and ducks like it's a gangbang situation so much so that the two following evolutionary things have happened the female duck vagina has a phantom vagina so that it's like the male the male duck she'll present to him the bad vagina that doesn't go anywhere and doesn't create procreation and then when the male duck either rapes or fox her his penis at the end of copulation, explodes and falls off. Don't worry, it grows back thicker and stronger next year. <laughs> but his penis does explode. Oh my God. Oh my God is right. And she has two vaginas, at least two vaginas. The phantom vagina or the trick vagina is not is not uncommon, especially in more of the gang-banging species.
0: No, truly, that is fascinating.
1: Like, like, it's fascinating, right? Like, the mosquitoes, for example, you know, it's only pregnant females, pregnant female mosquitoes that suck blood. Oh, really? Yeah. Male mosquitoes, they drink plant juice. Is that crazy? That's just, like, you learn, like, more and more about the mating aspects of animals. It's like, now, this is ripe for cabaret work, man, <laughs> just ripe. So I'm very happy that Juicy Hardcore, this, like, new character who's also, like, now starting to go into hosting, you know, started out with me making peanut butter sandwiches on my vagina to Careless Whisper, inspired by a number I saw in a strip club a long, long, long time ago. And I was like, this has got to come back to now, like, opening up this whole, you know, and then going into bestiality, and then now opening up this whole world of animal sex. It's like... Isabella Rossellini did something on insect sex, which is outrageous in and of itself, but it's just wild what, how different species have chosen to procreate. Like, for example, what do you get when you mix goat DNA and human DNA? I don't know. Kicked out of petting zoo.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Personally, it's just whatever I am reading, I do try to create some sort of feedback loop. Like, yes, it is for pleasure and it is, uh, it is escape, but it's also as any sort of artist or any sort of thinking person. It's like, how can I add this to my constellation of what I do, what I do and and how can I use it to keep motivating me and to see things in a slightly different way or express something slightly different? For me, pursuing whatever knowledge for knowledge's sake, it's like, I don't think that even exists because you can always use it in some way, even if it's an interaction with another person. So yeah, I, I, I respect that.
1: Trashy romance novels remind me that, you know, with my work-obsessed husband and me being work-obsessed, that it's important to take time out to have, you know, a Sexy Sunday. <laughs> yes. So it, it reminds me of, like, if the were-coyote in my romance novels is getting laid, then I better be getting laid, too, yo. <laughs>
0: All right Julie in wrapping up can you please give us some insight into any new projects you're working on and maybe where can people see you perform in the near future or the far away future
1: Yes I'm super excited to be taking part again in this year's Theater Bazaar which is in Detroit the weekends of October 15th and 16th and 20th and 21st it's going to be in the Masonic Temple there it's the best party in the world run don't walk to Theater Bazaar it is the fushizzul Also, from December 1st to December 11th, Matt and I are performing our flagship show, Beauty and the Beast, at the MCA Museum of Contemporary Art in Chicago. In between that, I will be peppering my performances all over the world with Suzanne Barsh. I'll be in Miami. I'm going to be doing the very exciting Ubu Sings Ubu on November 20th at the Highline Ballroom in New York City. I play Ma Ubu. Tony Torn plays Pa Ubu. It is a punk rock experience with, you know, Ubu Roi, one of the first absurdist plays in the world, combined with the music of Per Ubu and a whole bunch of theatrical shenanigans. And then I'll be at the box. And that pretty much takes me to the end of the year. I would say to everybody also, please look out for the video Radioactive Japanese Jellyfish by the Spasms. Matt, my husband's band, I directed it. And also I directed Amanda Palmer's upcoming video, Sunlight, which should be coming out hopefully before the end of this year. So that is beautiful and super exciting. I co-directed that with the illustrious Carl Giant. So there's been a lot of stuff. If anything else, you can just don't look at my website. I don't update it. Don't look on Facebook. I don't really update that either. I guess
0: that's it. Thank you so much for being with me today. I really appreciate your time. It was a lot of fun.
1: Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure chatting with you. Thank you
0: for listening to this broadcast from SyncBook Radio. If you enjoyed this episode, there's so much more content waiting for you at thesyncbook.com. Our newest episodes are always free and members get access to our full archive of over 600 hours. You'll find all of this as well as our books and videos at thesyncbook.com.